Radio Mano Papachango. Hi, Chris. This is Shay coming at you from Hastings, Nebraska, where I live with my wife and my daughter. Um, coming at you today from inside the infrared sauna we have at the gym that I run. Um, but earlier today, I, I just finished listening to the episode of You and Your Mom. Um, and I lost my mom when I was. 15 uh, to suicide and I'm almost 30 now so it's been about 15 years but I was home earlier doing the dishes as I was listening to your guys's conversation and I just couldn't help but think wow what would it be like if I were able to have that conversation with my mom now going through all of the things that I went through um, I mean she could meet my daughter it would be just it would just be crazy but I was just overwhelmed with emotion because I really identified with how you said a lot of times we view the person just as the role they play in the family and not in a 360 degree way Um, that they're a real person um, all the time even when they're not around us and I think for the first time listening to your conversation with you and your mom allowed me to do that so 15 years later thanks to your podcast. I think it's going to allow me to start to process some more stuff. So I just want to say thank you so much. I really loved that conversation. I love the podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. Hey, Chris, this is Liz here. Uh, I'm a Rhode Island native, but I've been traveling around Europe and the Middle East the last few years and recently came back to Rhode Island, uh, started a new relationship. And a big part of that relationship has actually been uh, listening to podcasts together. And yours is one of those podcasts that lead us into really cool, interesting discussions ourselves. Uh, We often have to pause your podcast to talk about something and then uh, come back to it. And yours are always uh, really great for us to listen to. Uh, We were just hiking along the Long Trail and Appalachian Trail in Vermont at the top of Killington Mountain, listening to your uh, most recent episode with Andrew. And that was that was a really great one to listen to as we tried to escape some of the craziness for a few days as well. Um, so thank you for everything you're putting out. Looking forward to listening to more. And a shout out to my boyfriend, John, on this one. Thanks so much. Have a good one. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much, Shay, Liz. Shout out to John, the boyfriend. Uh, congratulations, John. Liz sounds fantastic. Uh, hey, everybody, what's going on? This episode is with Tim Cahill. He is fucking awesome. He is, uh, I've been reading him since I was in my 20s, can that be? The 80s, I guess, when Outside Magazine first came out. Um, he was one of the people I read every time he had a column. Um, he's this guy. You know, he's this very sort of unassuming, mild-mannered dude who has done incredible things and uh, writes about them with humor. And um, 
uh, sort of a self-deprecating humor that's that's really charming and uh, approachable, and he's just he's awesome. Um, he's uh, anyway he's one of the founding founders of Outside Magazine. His books include. His first book was about a serial killer called Buried Dreams. We talk about that a little bit. Um, then he got into the adventure stuff. Uh, a lot of his books are collections of columns that he wrote in Outside Magazine. Uh, Jaguars Ripped My Flesh. Uh, a Wolverine is Eating My Leg. These are titles of books. Uh, Road Fever, a high-speed travelogue, is about when he – and a buddy set a world record for speed driving the entire length of the American continents from Tierra del Fuego up to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska in 23 days, 22 hours and 43 minutes. That's a lot of ass time right there, you know. Uh, as he wrote another book called Pecked to Death by Ducks. Are you starting to see a, a pattern here? Uh, hold the Enlightenment. Lost in my own backyard, I walk in Yellowstone National Park, and uh, his most recent book, I believe, is not so funny when it happened, The Best of Travel, Humor, and Misadventure, which he edited in uh, 2000, I guess. Uh, no, Hold the Enlightenment came out in 2002, so, and Lost in My Backyard 2004, so, all right, those weren't in the right order. Anyway, he's awesome, and I got to meet with him in Livingston, Montana, which is where he lives, so this is, uh, we're actually sitting across the table from each other, and a big shout out to um, Kyle Tierman, who hooked me up with Tim, uh, you know, Kyle heard that Tim lived in, in Montana, and did his homework as Kyle tends to do and found a way to get a message to Tim and convinced him to do his podcast. And in the process of doing uh, Kyle's prod podcast, he told Tim about me and mentioned that I was around and gave him a copy of uh, Sex at Dawn or Civilized to Death or something. And anyway, Tim agreed to, to meet with me a little later. So it was uh, thanks to Kyle that this conversation happened at all. Uh, super awesome to have a guy like Kyle in your life doing that legwork. You know, I uh, until recently, I was kind of perplexed by people who talked about the Internet as being, uh, you know, a place of aggression and, and strangeness. Because and, my experience on social media had been pretty, um, pretty positive um, in the sense that uh, most of the Comments I get on posts on Instagram or Twitter or whatever are uh, either kind of neutral or um, or positive and, you know, encouraging an agreement or whatever. And so when people talked about how, you know, they have to get away from Twitter because it's so aggravating or, you know, turn off social media because it's, you know, making them really uncomfortable, I didn't really understand what they were – I mean, I understood what they were talking about, but I, that wasn't my experience. Um but I'll tell you, this whole – this recent thing with the masks has become a real lesson uh, for me in in I'm not sure what actually – I know it, I know it's a lesson, but I'm not sure what the fucking point is. Uh, it, it's strange I, – I, it's not strange that people disagree. I mean people are disagreeing about everything right now. What I find strange about it is – the number of people who 
disagree with me saying it's a good idea to wear a mask. Saying what, what to me seems like just common sense, you know. The virus is transmitted in saliva. A mask stops the spray of saliva. So please wear a mask so you don't spray your possibly contagious saliva on people who are vulnerable. And we're all vulnerable. We don't know who's going to die, but definitely older people or sicker people or obese people or people with any precondition are more vulnerable. So anyway, okay, I people disagree. You know, people might think masks aren't effective or I don't know. But what is strange is the religious fervor with which many people respond to me, where, you know, I'll say on Reddit, for example, like, please, no more anti-mask posts here. It's ruining the vibe. And the, you know, the person who was posting the stuff won't stop, just keeps going. Or on Instagram, where I posted something and I just turned off the comments because I didn't want it to turn into another shitstorm. I posted a chart from the CDC showing that states with higher compliance to mask wearing have lower transmission rates. Seems like a pretty innocuous thing. And people will go to my other posts in order to, you know, rant and, and explain to me why this is all wrong. And again, I I'm not confused by the disagreement. I'm confused by the need that these people seem to have for agreement. And, and when I say it's religious, it reminds me, I had an uncle who um, became a, like a sort of a radical Christian for a while. And he used to, like every time we saw him, I was a kid, but I remember every time we saw him, he would leave pamphlets lying around about how Jesus saves and how you're going to hell if you don't believe Je I mean, lying around our house, right? And I remember at one point, I must have been 10 or 11, and we were sitting around and he was like telling me how if I didn't accept Jesus Christ into my life, I was going to burn in eternal hell. And my father happened to walk into the room and got really pissed off and was like, you are not going to indoctrinate my kids in this bullshit. And it turned into a, you know, family drama. But I guess what I'm saying is like, I, I'm not confused by the opposing viewpoints. I'm confused by the need that these people have to convince everyone else uh, that they're right. It's it's strange. Uh, how many emails I get, how many, you know, I got a thing just today on Instagram, some DM, this guy saying, I think you're, you're in danger of losing your audience. You're, you're going to alienate your audience. I don't give a shit. I'm not doing this to be famous, I'm not do. I would have famous guests on all the time if I were trying to pump up the numbers. I'm doing this because it's an opportunity to be authentic and to have an authentic relationship with people who want to hear it. People don't want to hear it, obviously. You know, there's a there's no way of holding them here. Um, and I assume that those of you who are listening to this value authenticity and you know, the clearest thinking I can offer you higher than a hundred percent agreement at all times. Um, yeah, it's, it's strange, strange days. Anyway, I'm in Colorado 
and we are waiting for the first snowstorm of the year. It's going to be rolling in. Uh, the temperatures are dropping yesterday. They were in the 70s. Uh, tomorrow, the high is supposed to be 15. So that's Fahrenheit for you foreigners out there uh, who use the much more logical and sensible metric system. Um, yeah, it's the temperatures dropping fast. Winds are coming in. And uh, by this time tomorrow, there may be 10 inches of snow on the ground. I love it. I haven't really been around weather like this in a long time, probably since I was in college in upstate New York. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to stop talking. Uh, I'm going to be doing – I'm going to record a video Roma for supporters. If you want to catch these monthly video Romas, go over to my website, chrisryanphd.com, thatchrisryan.com, tangentially speaking.com, and uh, just sign up. You know, join the Chris Club, I think we called it. It's corny. Corny as fuck. Um, but anyway, if you, uh, yeah, contribute something to the podcast, uh, as little as two bucks a month gets you free access to ebooks, uh, to the monthly video romas, and uh, to whatever other bonus content I put out, like the tour of the inside of the van was the last thing I think we put up. Um, yeah, so I'm going to do that. And uh, But in the meantime, I am going to uh, hook you up with Tim Cahill here, who is awesome. I'm going to play you out with a song that I've been holding on to for a while, uh, waiting for the right episode to play it. And I do believe this is the right episode because it's a song about adventure and travel. Uh, it came from um, a guy named Ryan Payne. He contacted me a while back. He's in a band called Gemma and the Good Thing. And uh, Gemma grew up, she's the singer you'll hear, uh, she grew up on Cortez, British Columbia, Cortez Island, where I've been uh, several times because my uh, friend Andrew Weil um, has a house up there, go and visit him sometimes. And it's a beautiful island, fantastic, just remote, funky place. And um, she, a lot of people hitchhike up there. You know, you get a ferry, you hitchhike across the island, you get another ferry, you hitchhike, and it's it's sort of a, a safe, cool place to to hang out. And uh, she wrote a little bit about the origin of the song. Um, uh, let's see, the song is dear to me because it's about Cortez. I hitchhiked a lot in my early teenage years. And from that, I gained a lot of confidence and a strong sense of community. So now that I have a car, I pick up hitchhikers when I feel safe enough. A few years ago, I picked up an eccentric young duck farmer on the way back from a visit to Cortez. I drove her far out of my way, and only after being in the car with her for about 45 minutes did I realize that she had two live ducks tucked under her arms. <laughs> uh, she had sweet names for them, but they were bound for the chopping block that evening. Fast forward to me studying music in a big city in the middle of the prairies. It's winter and it's cold out and I'm so far away from home. And this story comes tumbling out of me at a piano one afternoon. It's about the young duck farmer, but it's also about Cortez and it's about growing up. It's about all the growing up I did while standing with my thumb out on the side of the road. Yeah. So the song is called The Side of the Road, and um, it's up on Spotify. You can find Gemma and the Good Thing on Facebook, Instagram, and 
Bandcamp, and the song is on Spotify and on Apple Music, if that's your jam. All right. Thank you for listening. And uh, this is another commercial-free episode, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Thank you for your support of the podcast, however it manifests. I appreciate it very much. Talk to you soon. I heard a knock on my window. I rolled it down to a smile. She asked where these wheels heading. Can I sit in for a while? I made room in my mind. I made sense of my car. And I warned her. Why I warned her? I couldn't take her far. You'll find on the side of the road Couches, kisses, people The best things you'll find On the side of the road On the side of the road She had two little birds Tucked right under her For sure, by the morning, but don't worry. No, don't worry. That's exactly why they were born. All the wisdom, the gossip, it's endless. You'll find on the side of the road. Couches, kisses, people, the best things you'll find on the
All right, this card seems to work. Seems to work. It seems to. We'll see. All right, I'm here in Montana at uh, undisclosed location. Well, I guess it's public where you live. Yeah, it's pretty public. You're not worried about people coming knocking on your door. Uh, with Tim Cahill in beautiful Livingston, Montana. Uh, a lot of interesting writers. When I was driving in this morning, I saw a sign that said where authors meet anglers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to yourself, uh, Tom McGuane lived here for a while. Yeah, and he lives close by. Near, oh, he's still out, here? Out near the Boulder River. Oh, really? Yeah, which isn't too far from here. And um, oh, I forget his name right. Legends of the Fall. Uh, Jim Harrison. Jim Harrison. Recently yeah. passed away. Yeah, um, he was he between here and Texas? He had a place down there? No, he had a place in Arizona. Oh, okay. Uh, Arizona. Uh, which he did uh, winters in a place called Patagonia, Arizona. Um, Tom McGuane is here. Uh, There's uh, a number of writers, Walter Kern, um, uh, of of national uh, prominence. Um, There's an economist whose name I recognize. Economist. uh, I'm I'm unfamiliar with him, Mm -hmm. her, whoever. Alston Chase, uh, Walter Kern, um, there are a number of uh, uh, people who have published uh, uh, well-regarded books. Scott McMillian is one, and uh, he also uh, edits the Montana Quarterly, which is uh, a regional magazine that continually wins top honors at the Northwest uh, Mm. Prize. We are... um, uh, depending on your point of view, blessed or infested with writers <laughs> here. Uh, it's also, we also have somewhere in the nature of 14 uh, art galleries in town and mm. some artists of uh, national renown. Uh, uh, those pictures over there, for instance, are uh, lithographs from uh, the late Russell Chatham, mm. uh, who lived here for quite some time. What brought you here? Um, it was a place where I realized there were no warrants out for my arrest, <laughs> and uh, it seemed seemed like a good place. Yeah. Um, what brought me out here, uh, it's, it's kind of a long story. I worked uh, in San Francisco for quite some time uh, at Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone moved to New York. Mm-hmm. I stayed in San Francisco with... Uh, what was then a Rolling Stone project called Outside Magazine. And oh, it started as a Rolling Stone project. Yes, it did. Because uh, yeah. I listened to your conversation with Kyle yesterday, as I mentioned before we turn on the mics, and uh, I really recommend that to anyone who wants to fill in whatever gaps we leave today. You guys covered a lot, including the fact that you got fired five or six times at Rolling Stone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not for not for insubordination or anything, just cost-cutting. You, you seem to... Come and go, but every time they hired you back, they paid you more. So it worked out. It worked out very well. That's it. It was like after a while, I said, "Oh, I have a six months vacation, and uh, and I better write something for Esquire or somebody so that the editor publisher Jan Wenner will say, "Wait a minute, he's our writer. Get him back." Yeah, yeah. Esquire. Did you ever write anything for Playboy? 
I never did write anything for Playboy. That was like the promised land for freelancers. They, it, they paid really well. It was. I wasn't freelancing at the time. I was working at uh, as an associate editor at Rolling uh-huh. Stone, which basically meant, yeah, I did a little assigning, but mostly I did uh, uh, writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was an associate editor as well at uh, Outside Magazine. Then Outside... Uh, Rolling Stone moved to New York, and uh, you're going to find this hard to believe, but they found that New York was way more expensive than they had ever thought. And that's never happened before. Yeah. And well, this is when, the 80s, 70s? Uh, this would have been 79. 79, yeah. Uh, yeah, they had offices uh, on, uh, you know, 59th and Park uh, uh a very classy address overlooking Central Park. Uh, Do you know why they moved? Um, I think that it had to do with the fact that the uh, editor-publisher felt like San Francisco, uh, although it was great for music, was kind of a cultural backwater compared mm-hmm. to New York. Now, um, please... Uh, Listeners take this with a grain of salt because I do not believe that in the least. But uh, um, New York had uh, New York is a center of the publishing industry. Yeah, um, San Francisco is a, a tiny little finger of the publishing industry. So I think that that's uh, one of the reasons. Um, anyway. Uh, it was more expensive than they could have ever imagined, and they had to raise some money. Uh, what they did is they sold Outside Magazine to a concern in Chicago, um, Burke uh, Publishing, and uh, Larry Burke uh, took over the magazine. But as it turned out, uh, well, uh he was running a magazine called Mariah Outside, which had a circulation of about 40,000. Outside at the time, two years into its inception, had a circulation of somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000. Mm. Uh, so this little magazine bought the bigger magazine, and the big, littler magazine uh, thought, huh, we need some of those writers that the old outside, the one with all the readers, uh, liked. And I was one of those people. And, uh, and, and I was able to negotiate a good contract uh, because I suspected that they needed me. Yeah. Um, with that in hand, I'm coming back to your question. Oh, take your time. <laughs> with, with that in hand... Uh-huh. Um, I, uh, with that contract in hand, I uh, decided to move to uh, Montana. Now, uh, to me, it seemed in San Francisco, when you work really hard on a creative project like a magazine, uh, most of your friends, most of the people that you socialize with are from that magazine. Uh, So... My friends, many of them went to New York with Rolling Stone. Uh, when um, 
outside was sold. Uh, many friends went uh, to different places around the country. I, I, I surely didn't want to go to Chicago. I grew up 100 miles north of there and uh, uh, wasn't in love with uh, Chicago. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great town. I love to visit. It's, uh, I just would not like to live there. Um, but I had been to Montana for an outside story. It was totally eclipsed of the sun in 79 or 78, I forget. And uh, part of what I was doing was I knew that there were a couple of writers here in uh, Livingston. Uh, the late Richard Brodigan was here, uh, the late... Uh, William Yortsberg, Gats Yortsberg, uh, wrote Falling Angel, uh, Nevermore, and Tom McGuane. And, uh, and on top of that, Russell Chatham was here. And uh, Jim Harrison visited. And I kind of wanted to see what uh, things were like uh, uh, here. So while I was doing my story on the total eclipse of the sun. I set myself here in Livingston, Montana, and uh, I decided um, when I got back and uh, when outside was sold that I could probably do my work from here. Now, I look kind of prescient because... Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> remote work thing. Yeah, the remote work. 30 years later. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is exactly so. But uh, first of all, at that time, this new company was coming up where you could get your story to New York City within 24 hours. It was called FedEx. Oh. And uh, then there was this thing called uh, the fax machine. Yeah. And you could send stuff by fax. Um, and then later on, of course... Uh, uh, email and, uh, and the like. But, um, Were you doing your column already at that point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, you started right out in that col in doing the column. Um, was I doing it at that time? Uh, I don't. I don't recall exactly when the column began. I heard you talking with Kyle about sitting around the table with your two co-founders, and you were saying we need someone who can write adventure stories, but who isn't Superman, who is a normal guy who has the normal vulnerabilities and weaknesses and foibles. And they said, you're the guy. Well, when I said weaknesses and foibles, they, they, they knew it was me. <laughs> it rang a couple bells. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, it did. Um, you know, I, I graduated high school in 1980. I don't know when I found Outside Magazine, but it was in the early years. It, yeah. you know, I was in college from 80 to 83, 4, depending how you look at it. And uh, that was right up my alley. I skipped my junior year. I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska, worked in a salmon cannery, you know, been yeah. a gear junkie kind of. Yeah. I'm not very materialistic, but man, camping gear. I could read reviews all day. I love that stuff. Um, and I just, I loved that magazine. I felt like it was one of the few magazines that really spoke to me about the things I cared about, things I was interested in. And I was never a big athlete or anything. I just like travel. 
Yeah, um, and that's kind of what we tried to do. I recall, uh, as I said, it started uh, under the aegis of uh, Rolling Stone, under the Rolling Stone umbrella, and Jan Winner uh, said, uh, well, I want to do an outdoor uh, magazine. He thought he could capture these little comp- companies, hmm. uh, uh, capture the advertising that they couldn't afford. It was the era of rock and roll decadence, and the record companies uh, you know, paid enormous amounts of money f- to advertise in Rolling Stone. Uh, but these little companies, they had names like, oh, Patagonia and uh, North Face. Yeah. Uh, we could get them if we had a outside, uh, an outdoor magazine. And uh, Harriet Fear, who was, uh, uh, Jan said, well, who, who, who in the office likes to go outside? And uh, it was Michael Rogers and myself. And uh, Jan put uh, the great Harriet Fear as sort of... Uh, a moderating influence on the two of us and uh, the the idea I mean there's there were lots of ideas uh, little ideas of how we were going to put the magazine together and how there would be a a gear section and uh, uh, how there would be oh a food section we we could uh, do outdoor cooking by uh uh, somebody called Al Fresco. That, oh, that's right. No, you don't remember. Don't? You don't remember it because we because we killed that idea. Oh that, no, that was a bad. That's a good idea. So good, I think I remember it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we we probably did some outdoor uh, cooking. I thought I remembered Al Fresco. <laughs> that would be perfect. Yeah, and I remember there was a parting shot. Uh, yeah, right? a, a beautiful photograph. Yep, all those things. But what it came down to is here we are, three of us. Rolling Stone was uh, uh, in a not a particularly uh, uh, salubrious neighborhood in San Francisco at the time. Um, it was south of Market, and it was an old coffee warehouse. Mm-hmm. So. You have to imagine three young editors sitting around uh, in a in a room piled high with uh, all the existing outdoor magazines at the time. There were, um, you know, canoeing or uh, field and stream or outdoor life right. or things like that. And what it occurred to us is, as we read that, we were not. Uh, first of all, Harriet Fear had told Jan Wenner the whole idea of, of, of launching a magazine in order to capture advertising is just not classy at all. <laughs> and and Harriet, and uh, uh, that's what Harriet said to him. And uh, he said, okay, then Harriet, you make it classy. And what the idea was in its essence, it sounds like a slam dunk today, but back in the day, it was not. And that was um, literate writing about the out of doors. Right. Literate writing. 
Because it was all, magazines were all hunting or very specialized, informational. But there wasn't. Yeah. 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 But there's a great American tradition of outdoor writing. Exactly. From James Fenmore Cooper, uh, uh, Herman Melville. Thoreau. Thoreau, the, Hemingway. The yeah. Yeah. Um, and that great tradition of, uh, of uh, literate outdoor writing was not being served well by the... Um, very, in terms of outdoor adventure, there were things called man's adventure, adventure for man, man's uh, terrible adventure, uh, you know, uh, just, who knows, man's testicle. Um, and uh, I suggested to my two friends uh, that an outdoor adventure story might be... Uh, uh, what we were looking that that might be something that we could do occasionally in the magazine and uh, they said to me well that Tim that's the fodder for saga argosy adventure for man man's mm -hmm. adventure it's a subliterate genre um, for people who move their lips when they read uh, you know uh, and I said well Look, I mean, ad adventure, you know, y you don't have to uh, battle. Uh, you see a shark in the water, um, tiger shark maybe. You, you don't have to pull out a penknife and battle it to death in, in great gouts of blood. Perhaps maybe uh, you could write about what it felt like to be in close proximity to such a creature. And maybe the core of wonder... Uh, mm. in in that kind of thing and uh, uh, they eventually let me do that and happily it turned out to be uh, um, one of the uh, most popular uh, sections of the magazine and you became one of the best known travel writers of your generation uh, I guess I did fantastic <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which again is another interest I had uh, you and I could talk about writers all day I'm sure um, I heard that you're a fan of Peter Matheson, one of the... I came across him in Nepal. I went into one of those little used bookstores in Pokhara, and there was the Snow Leopard. I guess everyone <laughs> takes it to Nepal and finishes it and leaves it. Yep, yep. There were copies all over the place. I read that in Nepal, and I was... Uh, yeah, I was I was a fan ever since. I play in the Fields of the Lord is one of the books I recommend to everyone. Yeah, and... And it was one of Peter's first, and it is funnier than all the rest yeah. of his books. I mean, it, yeah. it, 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 it's not that Peter it's did. All, but it's tragic. I mean, there are oh, yeah, hilarious yeah. moments, but, oh, yeah. Yeah, my favorite character, Wolfie. Yeah, yeah. played by Tom Waits in the film. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, have you seen the film? I have not seen the film. It is one of the... Daryl Hannah's in it. Yeah. And she, I, I was lucky enough to hang out with her for a while, and we talked about it, about the film. And Hector Babenko is the, the director, and he uh, had terminal cancer and was dying as they were filming. Oh, and Lord. Basically, she said he sort of started directing the film, and then he was out, and the actors themselves got together and directed the film and finished it. John Lithgow... Uh, Kathy Bates, uh, Tom Waits, Daryl Hannah, an amazing cast. You know, I, 
I had heard several times that, that uh, at Play in the Fields, the Lord had been optioned. They were going to make a picture. They were going to make a picture. I'm totally unaware that they finally well, they did. did. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to talk about Peter Matheson, that room in there that you can't quite see, uh-huh. um, when Peter came to Montana, that's where he slept. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he, he's kind of the epiphany of what you were talking about, the extremely literate but very adventurous, very intellectual, but also very much in his in his body and and you know in the material world. Uh, he was a uh, was he a Zen monk? Yes. Yeah, fascinating yeah. guy. His Florida series as yeah. well, just fantastic. Yeah. He's the only man who has won the National Book Award for fiction and nonfiction. Hmm. Was it in the spirit of Crazy Horse? I don't believe that was a National Book Award winner. I think uh, maybe a Snow Leopard. Uh, wow, it's probably the. I, I would have to. I would have to look it up. But yeah. it's uh, if uh, if it wasn't the Mister Watson series, I'd be surprised. Oh yeah, yeah. for the fiction. There was. I remember talking to someone who told me they thought that he was in the CIA. There was some CIA connection with the Paris Review, the founding of that? Um, yes, that's a prevalent rumor. <laughs> <laughs> Which we shall neither confirm nor deny with the mics on. Um, travel writing. You mentioned travel writing. Uh, Jan Morris. Yes. Have you ever met her? Yes, many you, times. You know her story? Yes. I, I guess yes. you do. Yeah. Uh, just one of the first sex change operations uh, amazing i mean who has traveled further than jan morris you know well and also when jan was jim morris uh and hillary was going to climb everest right uh jan was up at uh, base camp waiting for jim was up at base camp waiting uh to hear whether they had made it or not um he had done some very tricky stuff to be able to be the first one uh, down the mountain to the uh, uh, whatever they were using on uh, teletype machine to let let them know that uh, to alert the world to alert the world but in fact uh, but what interested me is uh, he wasn't a climber that wasn't his expertise but there had been an avalanche uh, uh, above the Kumbu Icefall, and uh, Jim Morris went up there and uh, uh, helped dig out and save some lives in the avalanche. I didn't know that. Um, he uh, he worked. Uh, uh, he was kind of a spy during the Second World War. Right, decorated soldier. Decorated soldier. I mean, he'd done just about everything that a man could do to be a man right. before he decided to become a woman. A little compensation there. He, he was a, uh, she was a big woman. I can remember yeah. uh, first meeting him at uh, Rolling Stone, and I shook her hand and... Uh, her hand's way bigger than mine. Yeah. 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 Uh, have you read her book, Conundrum? Um, 
Yeah, it's a it, it's a difficult book to get a hold of these days. It's yeah. not in print anymore. Yeah, um, I read a little bit of it, but uh, somehow I didn't finish it. Yeah, Conundrum is the book that uh, uh, Jim Morris explains why he wanted to become Jan Morris. Yeah, the whole story because she was very private about it, not not hiding anything, obviously, but. Um, that wasn't the point of her writing ever, except in that one book where she really confronted it. Um, Paul Thoreau. Paul Thoreau, I, uh, I I've met him. Uh, we met in uh, in Hawaii and went to dinner. Mm. Um, and uh, but I can't say that we're close friends or that I know him very well. His approach to travel writing, in some ways, is kind of the opposite of yours. I feel. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I like, I respect, he wrote a book called My Secret History, which is a semi-autobiographical mm-hmm. memoir of his time in the Peace Corps in Africa and meeting V.S. Naipaul and all that stuff. It's beautifully written and really interesting. Um, but And I like the Mosquito Coast, but a lot of his other stuff is so sour and negative about the people he's meeting and the experiences he's having mm-hmm. that I that's not how I travel. That's not how... You travel. It's no. You look for the joy and the beauty and the, you know the illumination. And I feel like he's very focused on the darkness. Uh, but he's honest. He's you honest know, and he's, he's a great writer. He's yeah. honest, and I like North Star's uh, North Star Safari, his Africa book. Mm-hmm. In well, you know, he was in the Peace Corps in uh, in Africa, and he went down to and basically kicked out of the uh, he's kicked out of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, for, uh, uh, but 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 he um, uh, for sleeping with his students, I think is what... no 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 no, no. It's political. Oh, oh. Uh, it, it was it was political stuff that's uh, too complex for me to recall right now. But he went down to see his old Peace Corps projects, and uh, and they just fallen into ruin, mm. and he. Uh, he made a great case uh, about uh, uh, we're going to go to Africa and help Africans, and uh, uh, and it doesn't doesn't seem to work. Um, it's it's got to come from the uh, local people themselves. Uh, uh, Paul Theroux's, uh, uh experience in Africa. I have run into two or three uh, people who were in the Peace Corps in the uh, the 70s and early 80s, and the very same thing had happened to them. The the whole irrigation system that they'd uh, uh, helped the local farmers dig and construct is uh, completely gone, Um, all those things. So, I don't know. He makes makes a point, but uh, it's, as you pointed out, it's a very sour, um, uh, negative kind of uh, point. Yeah, yeah, it's it's difficult. The energy is difficult for me to read. Uh, all right, last last. Well, not the. I, it's so rare that I get a chance to speak with someone who knows all these writers and maybe has met some of them. Uh, Desert Solitaire. Desert Solitaire. Edward Abbey. Desert Solitaire was uh, perhaps my favorite book, and there is one story in it called 
Dead Man at Grandview Grand Point. Grandview Point, yeah, I remember that. That is perhaps the... I read this... I, I read Desert Solitaire, and I read that particular... I said, you can do this? <laughs> you you can do this writing about the out-of-doors? I mean, this is about life and death and... Uh, uh, it, it, the subject matter is almost ethereal, but mm-hmm. it's, but it's also funny, yeah. and it's also well reported. And uh, that, if there was any, any piece of literature that directed me in the direction that my life has taken, it's got to be that book and that story. Really? Yeah. That's that's fantastic. Have you ever met him? Did you get? A I never met him, uh, but we. Uh, 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 we corresponded a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he would uh, he would uh, uh, write me about uh, outside stories that he either liked or didn't like, and uh, it was pretty honest. Uh, speaking of other writers here in town, there's uh, Doug Peacock, Grizzly Years. Um, Doug Peacock was one of his buddies, right? That's when you bring him up. I think of Doug Peacock. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and uh, Doug may or may not have been one of the people that um, helped see him buried. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of. Uh, I was in Moab a couple of years ago, and someone told me that one of Abby's old buddies was around, and maybe I could meet him. But we didn't have time to, to stick around. Um, but it's there's there's a bit of uh, mystery around around that crew because of course a lot of those guys were involved in earth first and Mm -hmm. which is considered a eco terrorist organization and Mm -hmm. um it's very interesting uh very interesting time and interesting people measure twice Uh uh-oh the carpenter walked into his workshop his next project was to make a jewelry box for his daughter what had left home to pursue big ambitions in an even bigger alexa stop (laughs) <laughs> he made out the lumber, what? Oh, <laughs> well, your phone's twice, on. Cut once, something. He said to himself, Echo. It was an old stop. <laughs> <laughs> something we said triggered. There was a story being. She read. was. She was telling a story about a carpenter. I, I have no idea <laughs> that that particular. Uh, device his name is echo yeah yeah so i i have no idea. <laughs> I mean, we, we should have listened to it it yeah. might have been better than what we're doing it could have been edward abbey who yeah, knows right. we'll, we'll have to go back and look it up uh oh i wanted the, uh, a lot of what i wanted to talk to you about is stuff that you and kyle talked about a little and i was wishing kyle had followed up you said hanging out when you were at um, Rolling Stone, you wrote profiles of actors and directors and musicians. And you you sort of chuckled and you said hanging out with Jack Nicholson was as much fun as you would think. Yeah. Is there a story you can tell there or was, is it just the power of his presence? Uh, it, it was just uh, uh, Jack uh, being Jack. I think I went to... Uh, uh, I went to Aspen, uh, and we skied together, and uh, uh, 
Jack is a kamikaze skier. He doesn't have a whole lot of skill, but he likes to go fast yeah. and downhill. Yeah. Uh, then uh, his Range Rover, uh, the vehicle he had in Aspen, broke down. And uh, so he, uh, he had his private jet fly up with his mechanic from... Uh, L.A., whom he trusted, uh, and and, uh, since the jet was there, we flew down to Los Angeles to take in a Lakers game, sitting in the front row. Oh, uh, wow. That's an iconic experience. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, since my car was in Aspen, we had to fly back to Aspen. (laughs) That was was kind of uh, hanging out with Jack. And, uh, uh, you know, there was... uh, There was a little bit of drinking and uh, other fun, but way less than you'd think. Uh, Jack was very active and uh, didn't like being uh, put on the sidelines by any kind of substance. Hmm. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I mean, how many guys have had, you know, a career built upon being them? I remember reading some biography of him where he originally went to L.A. as a writer. He's writing mm-hmm. screenplays, right? Yeah. You know this better than me. But he went to a, uh, an audition because he just was desperate for money and his roommate was a, an aspiring actor, I guess. And they went. And the way I remember the story, correct me if, if you know a different version, but uh, the producers said to him, uh, Mr. Nicholson, we don't need you for this role, but if we ever need you, we'll need you very badly. <laughs> it's like yeah you do that and you do it really well but that's kind of all you can do uh yeah what a what a career um so i wanted to to talk to you about some some sort of deeper issues because you've spent decades traveling and and writing about your travels and going to very remote places some of which are no longer remote because you sort of blazed a trail and and outside magazine you know i've often felt i backpacked all through my 20s and into my 30s and i often felt this conflict between wanting to go somewhere that uh, lots of people like me haven't been to but also feeling some responsibility for kind of destroying the thing I went there to see. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's the Heisenberg principle. Yeah. Yeah, right. You're observing the thing and changing it as you observe it. Yeah, uh, yeah here's, here's my thought on the matter. Uh, there isn't a place on earth uh, that is literally unknown. Uh, there... There's forests, there's places that are undeveloped, unpopulated. Uh, few people see them. I can think right now of the uh, Indoki Forest in, uh, uh, in Africa. Uh, it's literally uh, unexplored. Uh, and I walked across it with... Uh, Michael Fay, the uh, uh, National Geographic's uh, ethnobotanist, uh, and it, 
you know, we we didn't see anybody except lowland gorillas and lowland elephants and dikers and. Uh, but you would think, well, Tim, you've 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 written about this now, and uh, uh, spoiled it. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. On the other hand, um, it's a giant forest full of valuable trees and valuable woods, and there are many, many uh, timbering companies, giant international timbering companies that have their eye on that stretch of uh, particular forest. a lot of times when they, and there's other places where the petrochemical companies have their eye on it, the mining companies have their eyes on it, um, uh, rivers that uh, uh, will, will eventually be dammed up. Uh, there's some people, power companies have their eyes on those rivers. And I think when a place like that is threatened, uh, what one has to do is say, well, look, uh, here's the place. i got to teach you about the place and show you about the place. Uh, but if there's people, people have been there, the major vector uh, is the number of people who have descended the river or ascended the mountain, uh, walked the trail, because they are personally invested in it now. And it, they are the people that say, that say uh, politically and loudly, this place needs to be preserved. Mm. Uh, this this is, and it is, the number of people who uh, have been there and are personally invested, because they will go out to their friends and uh, tell them, and that's the way. Uh, S- certain areas of our of our world are uh, uh, are preserved. the 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 uh, uh, the idea that uh, nobody has been there before uh, is one that I cherish and I love to have that uh, that sense. But no, the the giant international companies. Uh, know about it they've uh, they've either been there or they've uh, done their aerial surveillances of the place i think the only place that uh, i've ever stood where i know for a pure de fact that no other human being has ever been has been inside of certain caves and uh, i'm thinking here of lechaguilla cave uh, near uh, Carlsbad, New Mexico, um, because uh, uh, the cave was really only discovered in uh, the 80s, I think. Mm. And uh, it's difficult to get in there. You have to uh, you have to repel in, and it's it's a lot of uh, 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 complex. Uh, and physically difficult caving, and you got to be in there for a week at a time. 
which is a week at a time. Yeah. Why? It abs- because it's so big. Oh. It's so long. It's so deep. Uh-huh. Uh, it, you know, your first day, you're. But you have to have a permit to get inside, yeah. and you have to go with uh, certain hardcore cavers. Uh, and uh, the rule there is um, that. Uh, you can't scoop booty. That's what the uh, mm. that's what the cavers call it when you run ahead and uh, see things and don't map that particular room. So what we do in Lechagia is we let one group go ahead and be the first people ever to stand in that spot, and then they have to map the cave, map the room, while the other people go ahead and map it and uh, that's the way it's been happening in Lechagia for 25 years now it's that big a cave that they're still finding oh yeah 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 Uh, and there's there's amazing things in this cave Uh, there's uh, uh, these this this great room full of crystal chandeliers gypsum that uh, uh it's uh, absolutely gorgeous, um, uh, but it's it's difficult, and uh, and if you're in there for a week, you got to carry your own waste out of there, um, which is not the most fun thing in the world. Um, you, know, it's, you use a plastic bag, and then you wrap it up, and then you wrap that up in tin foil, and. Uh, uh, that's in your backpack. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, a little sandwich in there. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they they go they go into the first green dumpster that we can find, and uh, we think, geez, I hope some poor homeless guy doesn't <laughs> oh, yeah. think these are burritos. Uh, uh, your first book was about a serial killer. Yeah. How did that come about? Uh. I was working at Rolling Stone, and uh, I was doing some investigative journalism at the time, and uh, I uh, uh, I had some contacts, and uh, these contacts let me uh, believe that I would have uh, uh, contact with uh, John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer who was eventually convicted of killing 33 uh, young boys and as a matter of fact I ended up with uh, nearly 70 hours of interview time uh, with him and so that was a treasure trove of things that uh, uh, I wanted to do I spent three damn years uh, writing that book um, in the sewer of that man's mind and it was uh, really psychologically unpleasant for me yeah i was gonna ask you what what you felt being in that place did, did you recognize things that you had seen elsewhere or uh, was it totally alien uh, yeah a lot of it was totally alien because uh i did not believe that uh, a person could be so hideously cruel to his fellow man. Um, I believed that uh, 
that because of what he did, he must necessarily be insane. Mm. Uh, three years of working with it, uh, and I came to the cold realization that no, he wasn't insane. He just felt he wanted to do these things, and he was entitled to because he was smarter than everybody else. Which serial killers generally are, right? Very high IQ. Very high IQ. He's very, uh, he's very organized. Uh, and, uh, uh, but no, he wasn't smarter than everybody else. I mean, uh, he assumed that uh, one of his relatives would be the person to write, uh, get their name on the book, and I would just uh, kind of write the book. And, uh-huh. uh, and, then, and then he thought, uh, because he was a supreme egotist, he thought, everybody wants to read this book. I'm convicted of killing more people in the United States, or in, in the United States than anybody ever has up to that point. And... Uh, and, and therefore, uh, my book will be uh, a million uh, bestseller, quadrillion bestseller. Um, it was a bestseller, uh, but uh, that's what he thought. And he thought that uh, this particular relative that he had in mind was somebody he could easily manipulate. He would manipulate them. And that way, this is what he believed— you can laugh if you will, but he believed that he could bribe the Illinois Parole Board with all these millions that he was going to get from the book. Mm. Um, but uh, you know that wasn't really—he wasn't really thinking. He wasn't really uh, that brilliant. Was was there uh, an underlying sexual repression? Was he gay, and that's why he wanted to kill the boys? Yeah, um, he liked to uh, claim that he was a uh, a Marine, former Marine. Uh, excuse me, Marine fellows. Uh, you'd never say former Marine. He, once he a would, Marine, always. He was once a Marine, always. He said he was a Marine. He was not. He no. was. He never was in the service. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, there, that was one of the things that was uh, I, I found particularly um, uh, disturbing to me because there was a uh, a uh, a profile of the victim. Uh, there was a certain perfect victim, and after a while, I could see them on the street, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's not really good for you to psychologically say victim, victim, victim. Uh, Yes, he uh, he hid his uh, his sexual desires by saying he was going to teach them a lesson, uh, and uh, and some of them would uh, uh, want to charge him money, and. He, he would teach them a lesson. I'll teach you. And uh, uh, it was, 
it, it, yeah, well, it, was, it, was, it was one of those cases where uh, uh, he was uh, gay, but uh, he had these, he had these uh, homosexual desires, but he preferred to be seen as a big macho guy. Um, so, yeah, it was repressed uh, yeah. sexuality. Yeah. Did you have any encounter with the Vietnam? Did, were you of the age to be called? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had. Uh, 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 I mean, it, uh, it, was a, uh, it was a fixture of uh, my life as a young man. No, I did not go to uh, Vietnam. It turned out that uh, um, I had high blood pressure. Oh. Um, and, uh, but I thought, what the hell? I'm taking a physical to go to Vietnam. I hate the idea. <laughs> no wonder I've got high blood pressure. <laughs> but, but they, uh, uh, I remember the doctor in San Francisco said, kid, when the Viet Cong land in San Francisco, we're going to give you a call. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it was such a big, and I had friends who died there. Yeah. And it was such a big thing in my life uh, that I noticed many, many Vietnam vets are able to travel to Vietnam and have a time. I don't know whether I felt guilty because I didn't go and some of my friends died and, and went. I don't know what it is, but I have not, I've been invited to Vietnam many times and I have not been able to go. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think about the idea that, and, and this is kind of a maybe a silly karmic idea, but um, I sometimes think about those years, and you're talking about how the, the looming possibility of being drafted was such a big part of your life, um, but also other parts of your life were the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and the scene in San Francisco that was just exploding and art and theater and creativity. And is there in your experience, some sort of balance that when things are, you know, it was the worst of times, it was the best of times, you know, that kind of thing is because I feel like, you know, I'm a little younger than you. I was born in 62 and I saw Vietnam as a kid, but then, you know, my teenage years were, John Travolta and disco and horrible. Just like I missed the party, you know, but I also missed the war. So there's always this sort of dual, uh, you know, cutting both ways thing. Do things need to be really bad to be really good? Uh, I I wish I could answer that. Uh, There's uh, it's basically hills and valleys. Um, You... uh, (coughs) And that can happen uh, uh, psychologically. Uh, you know, you can spend uh, you can spend a week or a day being a bit melancholy, and uh, then something happens like, oh, it's a lovely day today. I'm taking my dogs for a walk, and you can. If you stop and think about it for a minute, you say, yeah, I'm happy. Uh, uh, 
but beyond that, I can't get, get any more uh, specific. I sometimes feel like things are getting so bad now in terms of environmental degradation, and um, I'm sure there's a that you carry a great sadness at some of the places that you've been to, knowing that they don't exist anymore. And I mean, even. I haven't traveled nearly as much as you, but some of the coral reefs that I've seen are bleached now, you know, mm. and jungles and forests I've been in have been clear cut and, and so on. And, um, you know, it sometimes feels like the task at hand is to learn to appreciate the beauty of life on a sinking ship. Ah. Hmm. Well put. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a glass half full guy. There are many of those places that I went to, uh, and uh, the local people hadn't seen anybody quite like me before. Um, and for some reason, um, a tour company uh, based in America or Australia or something. Uh, saw that story and said, we're going to run tours there. And uh, it's back to what I said uh, earlier. Uh, those places have been preserved because people come to wonder at the wilderness. Uh, I can think of at least half a dozen uh, Places that would fit that definition. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but, but uh, the fear that it's that it's all slipping away from us. Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> I said I get melancholy sometimes. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, David Brower, the mm -hmm. environmentalist. He he said, uh, "When we win, it's temporary, and when they win, it's forever." Yeah, and that's yeah. that's. Yeah, but as you say, it's. I mean, I feel this all the time. I, I live in my van uh, every summer. And this is the fourth summer I've come up around the Northwest, Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Washington. Um, and uh, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. But it's always that strange, bittersweet thing where you're looking out on this mountain range and it's gorgeous, but... If you know anything, you know also that it's been clear-cut five times and the topsoil's run off and it didn't look like this 300 years ago. It was a mixed forest and now it's just all ponderosa pine or whatever they planted, whatever, you know, quick growing. It's a farm, essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, I just read a really interesting book called The Overstory. Have you heard of this? No. It's it's uh, won the National Book Award, I think, last year. It's... And it, it covers a lot of, of what you and I have spoken about. It's about, it's a collection of stories that are all intertwined and each story has a tree as a, as a major figure. And so it's very much about how trees communicate and the sort of... Oh, yeah, I've read reviews of this. Yes. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting. And there's also an, like an eco-terrorist mm -hmm. angle to it. People, you know, trying to stop the old growth uh, logging. Um, quite interesting. But... But it's, you know, the more you sort of educate yourself, the more tragedy you see in these things. It's, 
it's uh, I don't know that uh, that's not a question. <laughs> it's, no. I just wonder how. No, you, you, you're going to send me into a fit of melancholy. I'm sorry. Here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Got to go walk the dogs. Right. Um, what about? Okay, here's another another uh, sort of conundrum that you and I have both faced, and you faced it to a deeper level than I have certainly. Do you, have you ever felt that you can live your life? Or you can write about life, and it, but it's hard to do both. You know, I I have not felt that. Uh, I, I felt precisely the opposite. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, much of my early travel uh, was uh, for outside or for Rolling Stone, and uh, my advice to. Uh, Aspiring writers is to take copious notes, and I took copious notes, and uh, uh, I eschew uh, tape recorders or video because I think that uh, you you are you are just that much divorced from life when you are looking through a lens and seeing it through a lens and thinking, I got it. Yeah. I got it. I got it. I got the thing. And uh, uh, what I had to do early on uh, was say, all right, this is beautiful, but how do I describe it in words? Hmm. I can remember one time when I was uh, uh, in college and a friend of mine said, uh, let's drive to Los Angeles. I was at the University of Wisconsin. There was snow piled up above the Bascom Hall. Let's go to Los Angeles. We got in a car and drove, and I'd never seen a desert before, and I cannot remember quite where I was, but there was this huge uh, expanse of sand and, and weird hoodoos, rocks balanced on rocks like a Roadrunner cartoon, and, uh, and it stretched on forever. And I stopped and uh, pulled over and just looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and said, I will never forget this. Well, I've described it about the best I possibly could. I don't even know what state it was in. I don't know where it was. I don't know. Uh, I didn't know anything about the desert. Uh, this is Mojave uh, Desert at the time. Um, when I take notes, taking notes is such a pain in the ass that you got to do you find yourself doing the most important things and you find yourself saying all right i'm going to write this so i have to write this so that my aunt charlotte who's been blind from the age of 7 will be able to see it in her mind and when you think that way those those experiences are are, are uh, embedded in your mind, and you remember them. Uh, I, I, you know, I've done a lot of interviews with uh, uh, when I was doing movie stars and directors and the like. I would put out a tape recorder, thinking, "I got it, I got it, I got it," uh, and then I listen to it and I say, "The hell." 
he was going off in this direction. And that was some interesting stuff, but uh, I just let it go. Mm. And uh, that's what I find wrong with uh, tape recording things. Uh, uh, when I when I try to take notes and uh, see what I'm really see what I'm looking at, uh, I do the internal external. Uh, uh, exercise in which I uh, say, okay, what does it look like externally? Uh, you originally feel like kind of a dope because it's, well, it's just a statue. It's, it's, it's gray. It's a guy on a horse. I mean, it's, and a little bit later you begin to get some interior things as, as your descriptions become more and more lucid, more and more uh, uh, literate. Uh, uh, your feelings also enter into it, and you say that's that's a that statue. I, I, why don't it's bullying? It's a bullying statue, and look at these buildings all around. I mean, uh, the, the the fire escapes are bleeding rust down the side, and you know. So, what do they make some men out of here? I mean, lard and sand? Look at this. <laughs> so I find that uh, uh, being a writer and taking notes is uh, is my best way of seeing things. Mm. Um, recently, I've been doing a bit of uh, uh, teaching writing in, uh, done some classes in Mexico and in Morocco. And uh, I'm not taking notes. I'm preparing uh, lessons for people or, or reading manuscripts and critiquing manuscripts. And I find that uh, my memories of those places uh, are uh, they're just on the surface. Yeah. Surface memory. Um, I could take you in the into my office there. I have seven or eight. Uh, large metal file cabinets and I can pull out you want to know about Bali all right here's here, here's my file on Bali here's my notes if I sit down with those notes and start reading them I begin feeling mm. what I was feeling at that particular time mm. way better That's than beautiful. way better than photographs yeah. for me yeah it's as you were speaking. It sort of reminded me of the the adage that to understand something, you need to teach someone else about it. <laughs> and in a way, your sort of writing, particularly, is showing something, is teaching something to people. So you need to understand it at a much deeper level. Yeah, you do. I mean, uh, I can't really teach you how to use words. Uh, that, that you know, everybody does that differently but I can teach you uh, little points about the craft how you put something together how you make it work how you make the uh, uh, how you use dialogue how you use uh, uh, introspection um, and uh, and as you say uh, we're all teachers and I think all writers have a little bit of what the Germans call the school teacher mentality I don't know the German word but uh, it's uh, you have learned something, 
and it excited you, and you want to tell your reader mm. about the thing. Now, the problem with that is that you don't want to hit them over the head with an encyclopedia. What you want to do is put together a scene in which the reader will ask himself or herself, uh, I wonder why that happened. At that point, you're ready to give them a couple of paragraphs of what you learned. And uh, so you, I call it sugarcoating the information. But, I mean, a lot of people, um, since I write in a conversational style, um, in a very um, uh, informal conversational style, uh, people think it's uh, fairly easy. But if you read some of the uh, pieces that I've written, most of them, you will find that there is fact after fact after fact after fact that you will learn a lot in the context of a story that may make you laugh. Or if I uh, am in a different mood, it may make you cry. And if I'm if I'm on my game, I'll make you laugh and cry in the same piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your writing style is very seductive. Uh, did you write a piece about skydiving? Yeah, yeah. Called the Scream of the Eagle or something like that. I believe I called it the First Fear Fandango. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I read that. When when was that published? Do you remember? Oh, uh, uh, it was probably one of the very first stories I. Uh, did for outside back in uh, the mid to late 1970s. All right. So I read that at the time. I'm 58 years old now. I remember that piece. I remember it building up, telling this. I haven't read it since then, but I remember there's this <laughs> where you jump out of the airplane finally after all the preparation and all that, and your body... You just panicked, and your body—you're—you're you're trying to run yeah. as you're falling. Is, is that right? That it—it it could be. I'd have to—I'd have to go back to my notes. Well, that's the fandango, I guess. The dance. Well, the, the, what I recall about it is uh, doing some research, and one of the things that uh, they had done is they took uh, uh, babies that are just able to crawl, and they put them on a glass. Uh, uh, a big glass plate and under the uh, under the plate was a drop off so it looked like you would fall uh, but you were safe on the on the glass and even little babies don't cross that barrier where they feel like they're mm. going to fall I mean six months old eight months old um, and that's why it's the first fear. Mm, we're primates. Yeah. That's why our toes curl when we have an orgasm. Hold on to the branch. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that. <laughs> that. That's the kind of information that's kind I have for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I've, I've taken up over an hour of your time, Tim, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it you being available for this oh thanks chris it's actually a lot of fun <laughs> uh do you have, are you working on a memoir by any chance are you gonna uh not really no i'm uh i'm kind of uh, uh enjoying 
not writing for a year or so, and uh, and you know I'm 76, and I used to do adventure uh, journalism, adventure outdoor stuff. Uh, It's probably hard to believe, but I've lost a step or two, Uh, and uh, the things that I used to do. Uh, I can't or shouldn't anymore. So I'm thinking um, uh, there's something else, maybe a memoir, uh, but uh, I have been a journalist for so damn long that I I fear that my memory, I didn't take notes on on when I was hired at Rolling Stone and when I was fired at Rolling Stone and which year that was, and I don't remember that very well. And I think, holy cow, I, I, I've got this this whole body of work that depends on my accuracy. You can check everything I've written and you will find that I am, uh, I've got my facts correct. Uh, writing a memoir, uh, if I'm off on my facts, I think I feel like it would invalidate mm-hmm. everything I've already written. So probably something like you were talking about earlier about Paul Theroux who did a fictional right. memoir. Maybe that's uh, so. So I'm toying with ideas yeah. like that. Well, I'd love to read that if you get to it. No pressure. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies, or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Thank 
thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day Baby, what's a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground